Well, leave your Bible open to Psalm 73. That's what we're going to be looking at today. This is a psalm of doubt, actually. And uh, that's the, the title of the sermon is Dealing with Doubt. I have a good friend in ministry, and he reminds me, man, we can't lay the blame of all the woes of Christians and the de-churched and people that have abandoned the faith. We can't always wag our finger at the church and blame the church. He always helps me to remember that. The church is not Jesus. We're not perfect. We're flawed. I think one of the ways we can look back at the church and see her flaws is that sometimes the church is not a kind, welcoming place for people that have questions, is it? hasn't always been the most receptive and welcoming place for people that have doubts. Maybe it's felt unfriendly, like their questions weren't welcome here, or that somehow they're a second-rate Christian, and they shouldn't even be raising such questions like this. And when I go to a psalm like this, I'm so helped and encouraged that, that God preserved this psalm for us, a man who had questions about his faith, a man who was languishing in doubt. He was withering. He was about ready to give it all up, pack up his Christianity bags, and head to the train station. And yet he got better. And that's his, this psalm is about his story, and I love that. This is a psalm of doubt. What kind of doubts? When we talk about doubt, that's such a catch-all phrase. What do I mean? Well, we're going to look at a specific kind of doubt here, but maybe you have doubts today. Maybe you're thinking, is, is all this Christianity stuff just made up? Is this true? Is this all there is? Is this really all there is? Maybe you're thinking, what if I just believe Christianity because I grew up in a Christian home and this is what I've been taught? And maybe I'd be a Muslim if I grew up in a Muslim home or a Buddhist if I grew up in a, a Buddhist home. What if God doesn't love me? What if there's no heaven? What if there's no afterlife? What if Jesus was a phony? What if this is just all made up? You ever think that? You ever question that? Sometimes if you do, you don't feel like you can voice it at church or talk to a trusted leader about it. You've got to suppress it, keep it hidden, keep it veiled. I love what Spurgeon once said. He said, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. <laughs> it is quite time for us to begin to say, ah, poor soul, I'm afraid you are not on the road at all. What's he saying? Is he glorifying doubt? No. Spurgeon is recognizing what the Bible recognizes. Sometimes there's what I would call honest doubters. They're not scoffers. They're not reprobates. They're people that have honest questions that they're seeking answers to because they want to be helped. They want to serve God. They want to walk the road and the path of faithfulness. But they're hurting. They're languishing. And this man was too. And I'm thankful that this is here. So... We're going to see uh, from the outline today, I never have really clever outlines, but here's the outline today. Three things from this psalm about doubt, okay, that you can just track along, hang your thoughts on, just think of them as hooks. Uh, one is the benefit of the doubt. Two is the burden of the doubt. And three is the banishment of the doubt. This is a story, remember, about how one man got better and found help and he found healing. Um, look at the first part of this that Kyle read for us. A psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I know God's good, but I'm really confused about his goodness. And so as for me, I know God is good, but as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. So this is a metaphor. Slipping and falling is a metaphor in the Bible 
for losing your way, for, for questioning everything, for losing your faith, for getting, you're getting ready to abandon Christianity altogether. That's what the metaphor means. Perishing, it's uncertainty. It's one man called it spiritual vertigo. You're confused, you're disoriented, you're dizzy. You don't know which way is up and which way is down. I was driving somewhere locally here the other day and I had my GPS on because I never trust myself. And for some reason, I thought I had crossed 1792, which is like my benchmark highway to find everything, and I hadn't. And my GPS was telling me to turn a certain way, and my experience, I knew my GPS most of the time, okay, depending on what tracker you use. Most of the time, it can be trusted and relied upon. But my senses were telling me, no, it's left. And my wife was in the car, and we got into a friendly, I'm like, I know it's this way. And she said, but that's French Avenue, and that's Blue Springs. And I'm like, man, how did this happen? I just felt so disoriented, and then I, knew, then I didn't know what to trust. Which Is the ocean that way, or is it that way? Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me all the time. Maybe that's part of getting older as a pastor. I don't know. But disoriented. Well, that was friendly and funny just in the car, but this is not a friendly and funny spiritual disorientation here. This guy's about ready to hang it up. He's on the top of a high precipice, and he's climbing, and his feet are slipping. That's pretty dangerous. It's a powerful image. You're struggling. You're slipping along the way. You're convinced that the next step may be the one that plunges you down to the rocks below to a horrible death. That's not a good place to be, is it? You're afraid to continue, but you know better than to stop. So that's problematic. You know you can't stop altogether. You've got to keep tracking, but you're, it's like you're in the dark, and you don't know where the next step is going to take you. You don't know what's in front of you. You just feel confused. But I will say this, don't be too hard on Asaph because climbing is a good metaphor. You know what it means? It means this guy's making some progress. This guy's out there living the Christian life. He's trying. And I got to be honest with you, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I would never preach this sermon on Christmas or Easter. Wouldn't do it. You know why? Because most of the people, I don't say most of the people, you never know who's going to show up. There's people that come a few times a year to church, and I never scoff at them or mock them. I'm grateful they're here. But this psalm is not for them. This is not a psalm for somebody who can just, with a, a take-it-or-leave-it attitude about Christianity, okay? This is not for the Easter and the Christmas goer. This is for somebody that's probably here right now, and they're in, in anguish, and they're in agony, they're, trying, they're climbing. They're fighting the Christian fight. They're, they're walking the walk. They're doing all they can. This is not for some scoffer, some mocker. They could just take or leave Christianity. This is an, an honest doubter. It's an honest doubter. And he needs stability. He needs security. He needs peace. He needs to be anchored. He feels like he is losing his... He feels like he's losing the fight here. And I want to I say, uh, say this for point one, the benefit of the doubt. What do I mean by benefit of the doubt? How can doubt be a good thing? Well, sometimes we're really hard on doubters. But did you know that you've probably seen the very last part of this psalm hanging on a Christian frame somewhere in a, in a, in a Christian's house? The very last part of this says, Who have I in heaven but you? And there are none that I desire on earth besides you. Have you ever seen that verse? kind of taken out of context and placarded on a wall or maybe on a, uh, on a Thomas Kincaid or a t-shirt or something, I don't know. Well, do you know where that came from? That's a beautiful declaration of truth, isn't it? You know where it came from? It came from the crucible of doubt. This man had doubt. 
He took it to God. He processed, he processed it, and something beautiful and precious came out of that doubt. What was it? Truth. Truth that's been preserved for 3,000 years, and we're talking about it today. It takes time and it takes pressure to make a diamond out of a, a black, ugly lump of coal, right? That's the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes doubt, doubt's a terrible place to live. It's a dangerous place to stay, but it can be a very powerful place to grow. In fact, I'd be careful giving this quote in certain circles, but you guys, I, I think you trust me. Francis Bacon, a long time ago, said this. He said, when we begin with certainty, we can end in doubt. When we begin with doubt, we can end in certainty. Now, he's not saying question everything. What he's saying is, if you're just going along with truth and, 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 never, and never applying scrutiny to, to truth, you may just end up in a cult someday. He's saying doubt's not always bad. It's good to ask questions. It's good to, to scrutinize the Bible. It is. Not sitting in the scoffer seat, but really saying, is this, can this answer the questions that I have? The Puritans call this the, the anvil that's worn out many hammers. It can take, the Bible can take any question you can level at it. This is truly the book that understands me. Already, just be honest, already, just looking at the first few verses here, do you feel like the Bible is relevant to you? Don't you feel like this book gets me? This, this book has us pegged. I mean, I've, I've lived in this psalm before. Like, Lord, is this it? Is this real? Is this made up? Am I naive? Do I have my head in the sand? Am I in a stained glass prison every Sunday? Or is this really reality? Is this truth? I'm thankful that I have a friend like Asaph. And by the way, you know who this is? This is not a baby Christian. Poor Asaph. This guy wrote 12 chapters in the Bible. Did you know that? 12 chapters. Psalm 73 to 83 and Psalm 50. And most of them are questions like, where are you at, God? Why are you waiting? Why are you asleep? It takes a strong Christian with a, a secure and genuine relationship to God to question him that way. I love Asaph. In fact, he was a song leader. He was a worship leader of Israel. He was in the, the, the tribe of Levi. And he was, uh, you, you, you could probably say it this way in modern terms, to put it in modern shoe leather. He was the choir director of Israel. Okay? And he's doubting. Now wrap your mind around that. That'd be like John up here leading us in worship, and he's not even really sure of the things he's singing right? Doesn't that encourage you a little bit? Be honest. Leaders have doubts too, don't they? So this is not a Johnny come lately. This is not somebody examining Christianity from the, the safe confinements of their easy chair and skipping church. No, this is a guy who's climbing. He's a leader. He's not a baby Christian, and he's confused about what he sees. He knows what the Bible says, but when he looks out, and by the way, the word sight is riddled all throughout this psalm. What he knows to be true is one thing, but what he sees and what he experiences is deceiving him, and he's confused about it. You ever feel that way? I know the Bible says this, but this is my experience, and I'm agonizing over it. I know God says he's good, but I don't sense that goodness. I know that God is a God of justice, but I look out, and I don't see justice. I see injustice. I see the wicked who are prospering, and are, they're peaceful, and they're making more disciples than I am. That's what he saw when he looked out. But there is a benefit to doubt. It can be a powerful place to grow. And some of the most beautiful declarations like this one came out of the crucible of doubt. And that's not the only place that you see, um, that's not the only benefit in the Bible that you see from doubt. Here's another one. Check this out. Do you know who Thomas was? I'm named after him. Uh, and, and all the Toms in the world get a bad rap, don't they? Doubting Thomas. 
You remember Doubting Thomas? He was one of the 12 disciples, and the disciples came back. He wasn't there when Jesus rose from the grave. He should have listened to him and been waiting, but he, he didn't. And so they said, hey, Thomas, bro, Jesus rose from the grave, and he came back, and he's seen all the disciples. And what did Thomas say? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. No way. It didn't happen. And they're like, Thomas, bro, you can trust us. And he said, listen, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the grave until I see him myself, and I see his pierced hands and the spear, uh, the spear hole in his side. And so guess what? Jesus shows up one day when they're all in an upper room, and the door's locked, and Jesus walks through the door, and there sits Thomas. And I love this about Jesus, because if you really want to know, how does Jesus feel about doubters? If you were Thomas and Jesus showed up, and you're like, oh, dang. <laughs> well, I've had it. Now he knows. What did Jesus say to him? Check this out. Jesus showed up, and he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. He's not scolding Thomas. He's saying, Thomas, you said you needed evidence. I'm a God who understands you. So here's the evidence that you need, my friend. I don't have a watertight argument. I've got a watertight person right here. Come and embrace me and see for yourself. And when you do, stop disbelieving. Because I'm here to eradicate your doubt and eliminate your doubt. And Thomas did. And then it gets even better. Next part, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See, we forget that. You know what that declaration, that is the most clear and powerful and compelling declaration about the identity and deity of Jesus Christ anywhere in the New Testament. And it came from a doubter. Came from a doubter. Doubt can be a powerful place to grow. A powerful place to grow, but it's a dangerous place to live. And I don't want you to live there, and neither does God. And that's why I'm preaching on this today. Because you don't have to stay there for the rest of your life. God can help you, and he has answers for your doubt. And I could talk about a bunch of other doubters you may know. Martin Luther, St. Augustine, C.S. Lewis. You remember him? One of the most powerful, apologetic Christian writers that's ever lived. And you know where his writings came from? The crucible of doubt. He was an atheist, and he was investigating the Bible, trying to disprove it. And a little book called Surprised by Joy was published as a result of his exploration. And then mere Christianity came out of that. You ever heard of those books? Interesting, isn't it? Be careful to wag your not to wag your finger at doubters. They may be the next C.S. Lewis. See, it's what you do with your doubt that's important. And a lot of religious people are uncomfortable with it because they've been taught all their life to just suppress it. Don't talk about it. We don't talk about our doubts in here. Just smile and act fine. If somebody says, how you doing this morning, brother? Say, I'm doing fine, like a robot, like a Stepford wife. I'm doing fine. How are you doing? No problems here, pastor. <laughs> that's, the, that's the extremes. There's like the religious view, suppress it, keep it quiet, hush, don't tell anybody, just smile and pretend. And then there's the secular, for lack of a better word, flaunt it, vent your spleen, tell the whole world about it, make a Facebook post, put it on Instagram, hold up a sign that says doubt is beautiful, question everything, right? You see those two extremes? Either suppress it or, or flaunt it. But the Bible has a third way, a middle way, a gospel way. You know what it says? It's process your feelings, process your doubt in the presence of God. In fact, don't ever forget what the book of Psalms is. What the book of Psalms, did I say that right? What the book of Psalms are? What? Anyway, <laughs> Don't ever forget what you're reading here. This is a private, it's not private because it's, it's public, but it's a prayer journal. ASAP wasn't on the corner holding up a sign that said, I doubt and you should too. He is praying. He's processing his feelings in the presence of God. 
That's where you go. You don't suppress them. You don't flaunt them. You take them to God where they can be helped. That's what he did. The Bible says in, I think it's Proverbs 29, 11, and it says, uh, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back, right? He holds them back and he gives them to God and says, God, help me. I can't do this alone. So, um, point number one was the benefit of the doubt. Let me get it off that slide there. Point number two, the burden of the doubt. So what is really at the heart of of what's going on here with Asaph? Well, look at this. He says, I was slipping because, verse 3, and don't be afraid. I know there's 28 verses. We're not going to take this long with every verse, okay? We're just going to slide right through here, take the 30,000-foot view. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So, okay, now we're getting to the heart of this. He's looking around at wicked unbelieving, ungodly people who hate God. They're not sympathetic to the Christian worldview at all. He's looking around at them. He knows what God's word says. And what does God's word say? There is no peace for the wicked. Thus says the Lord. He said, okay, I know there's no peace for the wicked, but uh, check this out, God. I'm looking out there and I'm seeing a lot of peace and health and wealth and prosperity and trouble-free, carefree living They don't have pains and troubles like other men and women do. They get their diagnosis. They get their biopsy, uh, and it comes back benign. They're not undergoing chemotherapy. They find their dream bride or their dream husband. They don't have infertility issues. They don't have miscarriages. They don't get cancer. They don't live paycheck to paycheck. They don't get skipped over for promotion at work. But I do. I do. That's what he's saying. Anybody ever felt that way? But you didn't want to talk about it, did you? Look at this. This is the most perfect description of unbelief that you'll read anywhere in the Bible. And I love that he's so candid and honest and frank. They had no pains until death, verse 4. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And by the way, back then, having a fat body was a good thing. Things have kind of changed. You'd be like, oh, good deal. Wicked people. It's not what he's saying. He's saying they're healthy. They got food. They have an abundance. They got cereal in the pantry, right? <laughs> They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. He's saying they have everything they want, and so guess what? They're puffed up. They're thinking, I'm crushing this life, bro. Look at me. Look at the car I drive. Look at the house I live in. Look at my health. Look at my Instagram account. Look at my followers. Look at my peeps, my tweeps. Look at all this. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Oh, now he's saying, you know what? They're cruel, too. They're cruel, they're oppressive, they lack compassion, they lack love. Their eyes swell out through fatness. This is a term in Hebrew. It means when they see something, they're so drawn, they're so greedy that their eyes are like bulging out of their head. I gotta have it, I I want it. That's their life. They want something, they crave it, and they get it. And this Christian ASAP, who's withering up and languishing, he's like, I don't get it, God, I don't get it. Verse 7, their hearts overflow with follies. And then verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouth against the heavens. Okay, so they're scoffing against God. These are unbelievers. Their tongues strut through the earth. And then verse 10, it may be hard to understand in your translation. It says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. 
What it means is they're making disciples. They have a huge platform. A lot of people follow everything they say. Does this sound familiar like 2019? Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? And then verse 12, behold, he's saying, take a look. These are the wicked always at shalom, is what it says in Hebrew. Always at peace. And that word's powerful. It means comprehensive harmony. They're flourishing. They're thriving socially, spiritually, relationally. They increase in riches. That's what he's saying. This is really interesting, guys. Look, look, at, uh, look at verse 8. The second half, loftily, they threaten oppression. Literally in Hebrew, this says, they speak from an elevated place. I was thinking about this last night, and I thought, you know, I'm learning more and more about social media, the people that are instant overnight celebrities on social media. They have an Instagram account, or they have a YouTube account, and they don't really seem to have any discernible gift at all, but they're famous, and millions of people follow them. Now, look, I'm, I'm not... Don't hear me as an old, crudgy preacher saying, ah, social media and kids these days. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this. Anybody can have influence and have a platform, no matter what your worldview is. And that's exactly what we see today. There are people who speak loftily. They have a raised platform, and anything they say, people are drinking it up. And many of them don't have any credible training at all on theology or life or I'm trying to be articulate in the way I say this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Some of them are like an appendix. It's like, man, what do you do? <laughs> it's like, okay, you're famous. I get it. And people follow you, but you, you can't sing. You can't act. You, I mean, um, and they have millions of followers. And listen, they're shaping people's views. And, and ASAP, it's almost like he had an Instagram account back in the day. And he's looking at it and he's believing everything he sees. People are like, chilling in Hawaii, peace out with my peeps. And he's like, man, I'm not chilling in Hawaii. I'm, I'm over here broke, you know. <laughs> and all these people are shaking their fist at God. They're like, it pays off to be ungodly, chilling in Hawaii, peace, hashtag peace, shalom. He's reading all this and it's influencing him. It is. And look, these, that's what they're called too, influencers. The YouTubers and the Instagrammers that have no discernible gift, but they have a huge platform. They have a lot of accessibility with scores, millions of people. And listen, they're shaping people's political views. They can tell you who to vote for or who not to vote for. And people are drinking it up. Same thing that's happening here. Their tongues strut through the earth and they speak from an elevated position. The Bible's got us pegged, man. I, I don't know any other book that's as relevant as... as as scripture is, written 3,000 years ago by an Israelite in another country, got America pegged 2019. They're shaping your political views. They're shaping your spiritual views. They are. They've got plenty. They've got plenty of advice for you spiritually. They'll give you this self-help book. Recommend it. Change my life. Who needs church? An influencer can say that, and millions of people are like, yeah, who needs church? Right? <laughs> That's, this psalm's got us pegged. <laughs> so, the, this guy's convinced about God's goodness, but he's confused about it. And maybe you are too. And maybe you need to hear ASAP's story. So, he looks out there and he sees prosperity of wicked people. And then he looks in here and look, look what's next. Look, look at verse 13. All in vain I've kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You ever feel like that? They're rich, I'm poor, and I'm not 
saying anything. It's, some of the godliest people I know are wealthy, and they have the right perspective on their wealth. That's rare, and that's unique. And I think you pick that up in the Bible, right? It's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle and all that. Love of riches is, is, is the root of all kinds of evil, so on and so forth. But he is making application here. A lot of people that have extreme wealth, uh, it's gone to their head and they want nothing to do with God. And so he's looking at this and he's like, they have everything and I have nothing. They're prospering, they're healthy. And it seems like I'm living this godly life and it's hard. And it doesn't pay off. Their life is easy and it's paying off. And he says, I'm confused. And then this is what makes it worse. Check this out, verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Man, you should underline that if you have a Bible. You know what he's saying? I can't talk about it with anybody because I'm a leader and I'll offend them and I don't want that. Again, this guy's an honest doubter. He's not holding up a sign. He's not writing songs about doubt. I mean, he wrote this one about doubt, but it has a good ending. <laughs> um, what I'm saying is this guy knows better than to go and have lunch with a brand new Christian and share all his troubles. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? He's, been, he's a gentleman about it. But man, this compounds the problem when you've got all this internal struggle and turmoil and you feel trapped like you can't talk to anybody about it. Check it out. Verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. Your translation may be, it was too painful for me. That word painful, that word wearisome, it's in Hebrew it means misery and anguish and agony. He's like, this is agonizing to me. And whenever I think about it, I can't find a solution. I can't talk to anybody about it. I'm torn to pieces. Have you ever, have you ever been in this guy's shoes? Honestly, I have. I'm sure scores of people have, and they feel trapped just like he was. And that makes me, I'll tell you what it makes me do, friends. It makes me think, I have no, on any given Sunday, there may be 10 people sitting in front of me thinking, it's so, I'm miserable, I'm in agony, it's too painful for me, I can't figure this out. And maybe it's the same thing he had. Maybe they're envious of wicked people, they're confused about God's goodness, or maybe it's they're confused about God's goodness in their marriage, maybe it's they're confused about God's goodness uh, in a relationship they're in or not in. Maybe they're confused about being single and wanting to be married. Maybe they're confused about being married and wanting to be single again. Maybe they're confused about being sick I don't, it could be anything. This has a broad application. But I know this, you never know who is sitting out there in the pews and the heartaches they bring in here. So be kind and be compassionate and receptive to people at church, right? And you know, a takeaway, I guess, for all churchgoers is you never know who's up here either, right? I just heard last week another young pastor took his life. He took his life on the very same day that he preached the funeral for a woman in his congregation who took her life. It's in his 30s. He had struggles. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that to, to drop hints. God's been so gracious to me, and, I, and I'm in a very healthy place. I'm doing really well. Um, but I'm just saying, you just, the, the, the application is you just never know, do we? You need to pray for one another, be kind, and be open to having conversations about hard things, even if it makes us feel awkward and uncomfortable. So that is the uh, benefit of the doubt, and that is the burden of the doubt. Does the godly life really pay off? And then here's the last thing, and man, this is the best. I've saved the best for last. The last point is this, the banishment of the doubt. So what happened to this guy? 
He obviously got better. He wrote this, right? He started with a conclusion. You know, I wasn't always sure about God's goodness, but something changed. What was it? And friends, you, I, I have prayed, God, take this last point, and may it be like a, like a sonic boom to all of us, just to never forget this. What did this guy do? There's a very powerful word in this psalm, and it's in verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. It was painful. It was miserable. I was agonizing in verse 17 until, until, man, underline that, circle that, italicize that. I guess you can't do that on your, in your Bible, but until, what did he do? I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned therein, or then it, 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 it could read, I understood. You know what he did? Can I just put this in plain English for you? He went to church. He went to church. That's what he did. And he got understanding. Now, I'm going to make an application here. It's going to seem strained, but I want to make this, okay? I talk to people all the time who go to churches and they're torn. They're torn. Maybe they're not happy there. Maybe they feel like they're not being used there. And man, it's hard as a pastor uh, especially if it's somebody that lives locally. There's always this, well, hey, come on over to my church. You know, I'm just being honest with you. I'm being honest with you. I try to do the best that I can when I'm trying to help, help people understand, hey, maybe you're the be the change that you hope to see there and pray for your leaders. But when somebody tells me, I don't feel like I'm getting fed at all and nothing that happens there seems relevant, and I know there's, again, this may be a strained application, that's when I get red flags it's when, because what happened to this man when he went to church is he, he got a paradigm shift. I mean, his whole world got turned right side up. And I know this, most people wouldn't describe every service at Grace Life this way. And I'm not just talking about preaching, okay? I'm talking about the whole experience, coming and meeting with God. See, only God could help ASAP. Nobody else could. And so he needed to go where he could meet God. And I know people are like, wait, wait, time out, Pastor. Hang on. I can meet God in my deer stand. I know you can. I, I know. I hunt too, okay? I can go to the golf course and hit. I can meet God. I can see God in nature. Or I can go to. It's just interesting to me. It doesn't say until I went to Disney World. It doesn't say it was too painful for me until I just skipped church on Sunday and got some windshield time, man, with my iTunes. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say he went to the beach or the swimming pool or the golf course or the deer stand. And I love all those things. Except Disney. I can't stand going to Disney for a lot of reasons. But <laughs> what this says is, what he's saying is, he got a perspective that he could only get meeting together in God's place with God's people under the authority of God's word. So I tell people, if you're not getting that, leave. <laughs> Do all you can to affect change. Talk to your leaders. Be humble about it. Be compassionate. Be, be sensible about it. But that's not a healthy place to be. If you don't feel like you're meeting with God wherever you are gathering for worship, if the word of God is not being elevated, if Christ is not being exalted, if the gospel is not being proclaimed, and you're not leaving more astonished than when you came, there's probably a problem. And your doubt's not going to be helped if it's just an experience that you're getting that's not... What's being highlighted here? He went to church. And you know, I say this all the time, and I'm probably kicking a dead horse. So forgive me if I'm being repetitious here. 
There are powerful things that God intends to do in here that he will not do out there. I'm sorry if that's offensive to anybody. It's just, I see it in the Bible. I've seen it in my own experiences as a Christian. There are like radical paradigm shifts that happen for me in God's house with God's people that does not happen out there. And look, I grew up on a farm and I spent thousands of hours, thousands of hours in a tractor seat on a 40-acre field, disking, mowing, planting, doing all of that stuff. And some major decisions in my life were made from that tractor seat. But I never had a paradigm shift like this happen out there, ever. I mean, it was always like, I think I want to go out for this sport and not that sport. I want to date this girl, not that girl. Or I wonder why this girl doesn't want to date me. What do I got to change? It was, it was important stuff for a teenager. But listen, that's not what he's talking about here. This is like mind-blowing. Look, maybe I can help. I think I put... You, have you guys ever heard of, of uh, the Fosbury flop? Anybody ever heard of that? I knew you would, Chief. Got an athlete in here. All right. Uh, whenever you watch somebody do a high jump, have you ever noticed how they do it? They run up and they jump off one foot and they flop over the thing backwards, head first, arch their back. I'm not going to do it because I'm five foot ten. Okay, five nine, but... It wasn't always like that. The Fosbury flop was invented by a man named Dick Fosbury in 1968 at the Olympics. And everyone thought he was nuts. Everyone thought he was nuts because nobody ever did it that way until he brought home gold and set a world record and, and, and created in athletics what is known as a paradigm shift. Ch changed everybody's view of the high jump. Nobody would ever go back and do the scissors or the western roll or the straddle man those look painful here let me move that those look painful anyway that's what happened to this guy asap had a paradigm shifting experience when he came to church now look i don't know if you're like me but I w i'm like i need a little more info here asap what happened what was the sermon on that day what was the text what the worship leaders say what was the segue what were the songs what were the lyrics he doesn't tell us in fact the word sanctuary there it means the secret place where God met with his people, which means probably the holy of holies that was in the tabernacle that nobody could go in, but you, you knew it was there, you could see it. And there was a fire burning on, on an altar that would have been in the temple too, right? Where animals were sacrificed continually to atone for the sins of God's people. Maybe he saw that fire that was always burning, always consuming. And maybe something clicked, I don't know. Have, how many, you can raise your hand, okay? How many people have ever felt like you had a paradigm-shifting, mind-blowing, transforming encounter in church with God's people that, did not, that, did, that changed you forever? How many people? Okay, thank you, both of you. No, no, there's a lot of you. Praise God for that. That's, you, then you know what he's talking about. It's not always the sermon. Hey, it could have been a conversation he had. It could have been somebody taking him aside and praying with him. It could have been a song that he heard. I've heard some of you say that about the songs that we sing here. It's like, man, that song, I don't know. Well, it's usually because our songs are laced with Scripture, right? This, this doubt got banished. It, it went bye-bye. He had a perspective-changing encounter in church. Look, look what he says. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Oh, the, the, 
the tides have changed now, haven't they? See, he was slipping before. He was envious of them. He went to church, and man, he got a perspective change, didn't he? He said, you know what? They're actually standing on rotting planks, and I'm in a really secure place with you. Where you're at, that's where I'm at. I'm with you. You've got me. I'm not slipping. I'm not going anywhere. You'll see a little bit later, he says, you hold me by my right hand. And you've never left me. I've, I've had the greatest good. I've got you. Sometimes it takes an experience in church with God's people to be reminded of how good God is and that the gospel really is true. It really is good news. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Now he's feeling bad. <laughs> he's saying, man, what was I thinking? How could I be so stupid? How could I be so short-sighted? One person described this as spiritual uh, myopia. Am I saying that right? Myopic vision. It's when you can only see what's right in front of you. That's great if you're reading a book. That's terrible if you're driving a car. <laughs> And that's what he could only see the here and now. They're rich. They got a platform. They got a million followers. They're wealthy. They're healthy. They're happy. And God's saying, number one, you don't know that. Don't believe everything you see on Instagram, Asaph. Probably not as happy as you think they are. And number two, Asaph, this life is a vapor. <laughs> and then it's gone. You ever walked outside on a cold morning in Florida? You have to wait till about February. <laughs> And you had your hot cup of coffee and you took a drink and then you went, <sighs> and it was, a it was a mist. ASAP remembers. This is not all there is. There's eternity after this. And God's going to call everyone to account. I read a story the other day. It was about an arrogant farmer who hated God and despised the people that went to church. And his fields surrounded this little bitty old Baptist church. And every Sunday, he would be out on his tractor, shaking his fist at the people, yelling obscenities at them. And he would purposely choose the field that was closest to the church to do all the work on Sunday morning when they were having church. All month long in October, he did that. Leading up to October, September, October, whenever the planting and harvesting is. I've forgotten, it's been so long. But he planted and he harvested and he had a beautiful crop. And he actually wrote an article and sent it to the local paper in a small town. He said, look, I've got a bumper crop. Best crop I've had uh, in, in decades. And the best crop anywhere in the county. And I did it all on Sunday. When you Christians were in your stained glass prison, wasting your time. What has God even really done for you anyway? And he says, so, so what do you think about that? And he, he wrote the article and, and the, the, the newspaper published it. And then the next week, the editor of the newspaper, who was a Christian, sent this reply. And he said, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. <laughs> True? God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. And sometimes that's the perspective we get when we come to church. This is not all there is. There's a judgment coming. And I think that the reason he felt so terrible is because he knew, I shouldn't be envying those people. I should be pitying them. They're the mission field. They need my help. They need this perspective that I'm getting. They need me to take it to them. They're actually outsiders. They don't have a family. They need to be insiders. He got all that. He understood it. 
But it's interesting the words that he uses here. He says, I was embittered. I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's like, I was an animal towards you, God. I was confused. I was angry. I was afraid. But then look at this. Nevertheless, that's the next most important word here, and we're we're closing here. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Man, he came a full 180. He said, there's nothing I need but you. I read a meme the other day, and it was of a a Puritan that was persecuted, and he was about to be put to death, and all they gave him for months was a glass of water and a piece of bread every day. And he said, look, I get all of this, and Jesus too. He is not poor nor much enticed who loses everything but Christ. He said, I have everything I need, and I've got more than I need. I don't need anything. They don't have anything that I need to enrich me or to secure my heart. There's nothing on earth I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail. He's like, hey, I may doubt again, but I know God's going to be there. God's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. He's like, yeah, the godly life pays off. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's what he's doing here. He's praising God and he's telling his story. But isn't that interesting? He was like a beast before, before the Lord. He felt terrible about it. Last night at 1.30 in the morning at my house, true story. Yes, I was up. Yes, I was working on this sermon. No, I was not finished. <laughs> and my little toddler, he's three years old, and he was in his bed. Praise the Lord, he's back sleeping in a bed and not in a crib anymore. And he went nuts. I can't explain it other than this right here. He was like an animal. He was screaming, and I'm like, I ran in there, and I'm like, shh, shh. <laughs> I want to be like, shut up. The whole house, you're going to wake up. I've got six kids, and if you wake up one, you wake up two. You, it's domino effect, baby. It's all, all bets are off. So I'm like, shh, be quiet. What's wrong? He goes, ah, ah. He goes, ah, hungry, thirsty. My foot hurts. My back hurts. He, monster. He was afraid. He was hungry. He was angry. He was confused. He was like an animal. And there's nothing I could, listen, there was nothing I could do to console him. He screamed louder. I'm all, I'm all, <laughs> oh man, I love that we can just keep it real in here. I'm almost like ready to put my hand over his mouth. Seriously. I'm like, what is going on with you? What do you, what do you want, a hot dog, yogurt? What is it? And he goes, no, my foot. I'm like, okay, you want a bandit? He goes, no, hot dog. I, I couldn't get a clear answer out of him. <laughs> I'm like having a hostage negotiation. What do you want, a chopper? I, what do you want, $10,000? And then I got angry and I started threatening him. I'm going to put you back in that crib and zip you up in there if you don't be quiet right now. I said, in fact, I'm going to leave right now. (laughs) I'm about to get up and like this arm went and grabbed me and it was him. He said, you're not leaving. (laughs) Now, this is a true story. God's my witness. He said, daddy, I need you. He said, I want you, daddy. I need you. Don't go. He said, hold me. Hold me, I want you. I'm seriously, and I promise you, I was working on the last point of this sermon. And I'm always asking God, Lord, show me what, what, what's this all about. There's none that I need. There's nobody I need but you. I was like a beast before you, but you still held on to me. And I'm like, this is it. This is it. Listen, how can a doubter like this be loved by God? You know, we're all like that little toddler. We're all like Asaph. 
We don't even know what we want. We're confused. We're disoriented. We're angry. We're hungry. We're envious. We're <laughs> we have pockets of unbelief. We don't even know what we want, whether it's a hot dog or yogurt or a Band-Aid. We don't know. But listen, God does know, and he's not going anywhere. See, I was annoyed by my toddler. I didn't want to be in the bed with my toddler. I wanted my toddler to shut up. Can I just be honest with you? God is none of those things. None of them. He's not annoyed by your doubt. He's not irritated by you. He doesn't wish you'd just shut up so he could go back to working on his sermon. He's going to lay down beside you, and he's going to take your little hand in his, and he's not going anywhere. Because you didn't do anything to earn him being there in the first place. Christ did. How can, how can a doubter be loved by God? Because God died for us. Jesus died for us. That word, troubled, wearied, and anguished that I told you about in verse 16, that's the same word used in Isaiah 53 talking about the Messiah who would come to suffer. He shall see the anguish and the trouble in his soul, and he shall be satisfied. See, Jesus, didn't, he, Jesus wasn't a doubter, but he was in anguish. He said in Matthew 26, my, in the garden, my soul is in agony to the point of death. Who came to his rescue? Nobody did. His friends deserted him. All of them deserted him. They denied him with cursing. The religious structures in his day crucified him. His family thought he was crazy in the beginning of his ministry. Jesus had nobody to come to him in his darkness and in his confusion. But he came to ours, didn't he? He hung on that cross for you and for me so we would know beyond a shadow of the doubt that he loves us. Martin Luther said this once. He said, it's very hard for a man or a woman to believe that God is gracious to him. The human heart can't grasp this. You know what our biggest doubts are, friends? You know what our biggest doubt is? We really wonder, can God love somebody like me? Would Jesus really die for an animal like me? And the answer is, yes, he would. Yes, he did. The gospel really is true. Jesus really does love you, and he's not going anywhere. Your doubt doesn't put him off or annoy him or irritate him or anger him. In fact, it draws him closer to you. It's good to be near God. We don't have anything to be envious about of the outsiders. They need what we have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. You are so gracious to us. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love. You give us all these reminders, the proclamation of the gospel, communion at the first of every month, Lord, when we can handle the bread and taste the juice and the wine and, and be reminded that your body was broken for us, your blood was shed, shed for us, Lord. We can see the baptisms that take place and remember that you were plunged under the wrath of your Father and you absorbed it so that we could share the new life that you were resurrected to bring us. We know that we share in your victory because we're united to you by faith. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in this room struggling with doubt, with doubt they would know. They would know, Lord, that you want to draw near to them. You want them to process that doubt in your presence. You can take it. You can take their anger. You can take their confusion. You've been absorbing people's wrath for a long time, Lord. <laughs> and I pray that people would leave here today changed. Not because of me, not even because of this message, but because of you, Lord, because of the gospel. Bring full clarity. Give us that spiritual paradigm shift that we need. God, may we leave here changed today because of Christ. And it's in his powerful and mighty name I pray. Amen.